as we were singing, I was trying to think about all the significant themes that we were singing about. Uh, I ran out of memory space uh, pretty quick into those songs, very thankful. Just the idea that he is our Savior. The Lord our God is our Savior. I don't know about you, but that is incredible truth. That he's saved us. He saved us uh, not only from ourself. He saved us from our sins. And he is our Lord and Savior. I hope your hearts have been encouraged this morning. Turn to Luke chapter 1. We've been marching through the book of Luke. We're in verses 46 through 56 this morning. And last week we made the statement that joy is the result of knowing God and trusting God. And that's what we're seeing in the life of Zechariah, Elizabeth, and Mary. This is the first chapter And as we've said and labored the point over the weeks, this is a letter that is written to recount the story of Christ so that anybody who's far from Christ or somebody who wants to confirm the details of Christ can read about. That's why Luke wrote this to a man whose name was Theophilus. And we've said multiple times he was seemingly renting his faith and he wants to own his faith. And so that was where we're at. And we stumbled across this idea of joy as the result of knowing God and trusting God. And that's why it's so incredibly important. If you want to have joy, you've got to first know God. You see, what you think about God uh, colors everything that you believe to be true. and, And it colors your emotions how you interact with things, the things that you think about God, what you know about God to be true, what you believe, if they're not rooted in the Bible, they have a tendency, they have an absolute tendency to affect things down line. Just like if sir, if you put dye in the water on a river or on a stream and you had somebody walk downstream for a period of time, and you put some particular color of dye in there, eventually they'd see it spread out downstream. That's the same idea. Is what you think about God colors the way you perceive him, colors the way you see him in your life, changes the way you live. Matter of fact, we can see this in the earliest ages. There was a project in a church where little kids, about third grade, were asked to write something about God, and particularly uh, pray to God. Say something to him and and thank him for who he is. And um, it's interesting that we don't know any of these kids, but you're going to find out what they think about God. Ruth says, I think the stapler is one of your greatest inventions. Little kid sees this thing and goes, God's the creator. I think that's fantastic. Nan said, I bet it's very hard for you to love all the people in the whole world There are only four people in our family, and I could never do it. (laughs) Yeah. Might be an amen coming out of that. (laughs) Mickey said, if you watch in church on Sunday, I will show you my new shoes. God's watching me, particularly on Sunday. There's a concentration of who God is on Sunday in Mickey's mind. Donna said, we read... Thomas Edison made light, but in Sunday school, they said you did it, so I bet he stole your idea. (laughs) That's fantastic. 
Charles said, I, I do not think anybody could be better, God. Well, I just want you to know, and I'm not just saying that because you are God. Eugene said this, I didn't think orange went with purple until I saw the sunset you made on Tuesday. Wow, there's a lot of emotion over here. <laughs> Somebody might need a hug. Just move, move in. Nora said something that was... Um, Really profound. And this shows us a lot about what Nora thinks. She said this, I don't ever feel alone since I found out about you. Well, that's... That might not be expansive theology and content, but man, you can't get any deeper than that in, in its richness, can you? So when we think of this idea of joy as a result of knowing and trusting God, I think we can expand that this morning before we get into our text. I think the idea when we know God, we trust God. And we trust God, we worship. I think that's what we've seen in the text. Think about it. When we know God, when you really know who God is, you naturally trust God. And when you trust God, that sets you up to worship God. And this is where it starts. This is why it's so important. What you know about God, it's not that Christianity is only a creed. They're creedal dynamics. It's not only that it's a cause. It is a cause. It's not only that it meets in church. It is a church. It's not only that it has commands that are involved. There are commands involved. But there is at the bottom of this, Christ. And when you know who Christ is, you want to trust Christ. And so here's the thing, before we even start this morning, if you're having a tough time trusting Christ, can I encourage you to reconsider who you believe Christ to be? Because this is the thing, if you study the life of Christ and look into his life, who he is and how he treats people, what he's done, man, you've just got to want that. If you think that Christ is all about taking life from you, What happens is this. If you believe that, you never get here. Why would you trust somebody who doesn't want you to live life? And so the idea of worship is really far from you. But here's the thing. If you come to believe this, you come to know God. Then it sets up the trust of God. And it always leads to the worship of God. In our passage that we've looked at so far over the weeks, we actually see this play out. Remember Zechariah? You would think he would know God. He's a priest. He's involved with the tabernacle. He's involved in serving. Uh, The angel comes to him in the tabernacle. I mean, everything is absolutely set up for him to trust. But there was something in Zechariah that didn't let him move when Gabriel said, you're going to have a child. In his brain, he thought, I'm too old. My wife's too old. How is this going to happen? How could this possibly be true? And so therefore, he didn't believe. And so he was never put in a position of worship. Matter of fact, the backstory of what we talked about last week and this week, you never hear of Zachariah in the moment of the worship that we're talking about. He's in a corner someplace. He's outside of the house. He's deaf. He can't speak. Why? Because Gabriel says, I am Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God. 
Trust should not be a hard thing for a priest. So during this, your worship's going to be affected. But then you have someone like his wife, Elizabeth. And then we have Mary, both of them. And today you're going to see specifically four aspects of worship because Mary trusted. She knew God. And you're going to see how she knew God. And you're going to see that she trusted God. And particularly as those things are lining up fast, this morning you're going to see four particular ways how she worshipped God. But I don't want you to see her just worshipping in a vacuum. She worshipped because she trusted. And she trusted because she knew. That's incredibly important for us. So if you're over in verse 46, let's walk down through this together this passage it says and mary said my soul magnifies the lord and my spirit rejoices in god my savior for he looked on the humble estate of his servant for behold from now on all generations will call me blessed for he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name and his mercy It's for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham. And to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Now, this is passages like we come into a, a dinner that's already started and we've got to find our seat around the table. So understand that this is an explosion of worship that's happening in the life of Mary. If you remember from last week and the preceding weeks, uh, she finds out that she is going to give birth to the Messiah. She's a virgin, can't put that together, but she trusts. She says, I'm your servant. And then she travels down, as we looked last week, to Elizabeth's house. Why did she do that? She did that because Gabriel had told her that Elizabeth is pregnant. Now remember, Elizabeth is in her 60s. Most likely, the word that's used to define them in their older age, her and her husband, they're in their 60s. Mary is about 14. They've seen each other at the festivals. They know about each other. And so when Mary hears this, that she is going to give birth, picture the scene. She wants confirmation of what she's been told by the angel. And the only confirmation, the only physical material confirmation she can receive is Elizabeth is pregnant. And so Mary hurries her way south about 70 miles from Nazareth, this no-name town, all the way down to someplace most likely within about five miles of Jerusalem. Because the majority of priests would live about that far away because they would travel regularly to Jerusalem. Not too far away. So she's down there. When she comes in, she begins to tell the story. If you remember last week, she greeted Elizabeth. And now greeting isn't, hi, how are you? Greeting is, let's catch up. Tell me what's been going on in your life. And Mary starts to tell her. And I think that when she gets to the point of the end of the story, talking about how the baby 
is going to rule forevermore. She goes through those five things that we talked about at length last week. And the baby is going to have a throne that's going to last forever. John the Baptist, who is in the womb of Elizabeth, jumps in the air. And Elizabeth shouts out and she begins to praise the Lord. The Holy Spirit fills her, takes over the scene as Luke is writing it. And as soon as Elizabeth gets done, Mary launches. And it doesn't say that she screams out like Elizabeth. She doesn't yell. She doesn't rejoice. Remember that word that we talked about last week? That word rejoice has the same idea when they're bringing the Ark of the Covenant up into the city. People were yelling and screaming. That's what Elizabeth was doing. Mary just launches into what's been called the Magnificat. It's the idea of blessing. She begins to be filled with God's spirit and she says what the text has in front of us. In other words, Mary, when she sees all these pieces to come together, it's not that she didn't believe. She totally believed. But when she sees the verification of what she did believe, she's filled with worship. Because because this is the thing. What she knew about God to be true, she trusted to be true. And now when it's confirmed in this way, in the presence of Elizabeth, it leads to her worship. And there's four specific things that I think are important for us today. Four aspects of your worship and my worship that relates to Mary. But I want to tell you again, if you don't know God in the way he's revealed in the scripture, and particularly Christ, that'll short circuit these things. If you're actively living in a way that's not trusting the Lord, in other words, you know something to be true, but you simply don't trust him. I'll guarantee you this morning, your worship will be short circuited. It'll be limited. You'll put a governor on it, meaning you'll hold it down. So as we're going through this time this morning, as we're going to launch into these four things, the four questions at the bottom of the teaching guide, we're going to pause. At the end of each of the points, we're just going to ask that question. You can look forward, you can look down and, and see about those things. Begin to ponder these things in your heart. Because this is the thing about coming to church. Nobody comes to church hitting it out of the park all week. No one does. No one comes to church and never has any issues. All of us come here as people that go, I wish I worshiped the Lord better. I wish I trusted more. I wish I knew him in that way. Everybody does that. So this isn't a time in which we celebrate the people who've got it right and we mourn for the people that are the dopes who aren't getting their walk with Christ right. No, we all come together under the banner of God's goodness in Christ. We're reminded of things that maybe we've put on the top shelf and we've forgotten, or maybe we've put in the back of the cupboard and we're not reaching for anymore. So as we go through these things, feel free to glance down and consider those questions. We'll get to them. Look at the first part, I think, of Mary's worship here. I think it was personal. Verses 46 through 49. It was personal. Why do I say that? Uh, notice the word usage in these verses. My soul, my spirit, my savior, his servant, call me, great things for me. I think when we think about this, Mary is specifically has her personal worship. How could he have done this to me? When you think about that idea of a pers- that personal pronoun, 
She's overwhelmed and she personally worships. But I'd like to go a little bit deeper. What sets up her worship? Well, look at that in verse 47. My soul magnifies the Lord. Mary didn't just come up with that phrase. Mary wasn't pausing at some point or the Holy Spirit wasn't overriding her so that she was giving us new information. What's amazing about this As she goes down through this, she's actually quoting or referencing or inferencing different passages in the Old Testament. Particularly that idea, my soul magnifies the Lord, Psalms 34, 2 and 3. This is a psalm of David. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. You see... Mary is drawing on what she knows is true about God. What she has trusted about God. That's fueling her worship of God. More than that, look at this. It says, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. That's an inference to Isaiah 45, 21. There is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none beside me. You see, she's drawing on what she knows to be true about God from what she's studied about God in the Old Testament. Now, in this context, remember, uh, in this culture, the women would know the word, but the men were demanded to know. In other words, Mary, in her 14 years of life, she got close to the Old Testament. She wanted to know who God was. Verse 48, and he looked on the humble estate of his servant, This is, we don't know, but this most likely is a passage again from Psalm 136, 23, David. It is he who has remembered us in our low estate for his steadfast love endures forever. Verse 48, for behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who has been mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. This is a reference to an inference, 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16 Because Mary, in understanding that this Messiah is going to come through her, she connects this with the promise that was given to David. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He'll be the house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. What you need to see is when she hears this situation with Elizabeth, her worship is personal, but it's also based on truth based on what she knows is true about God. And so her trust is fueled and her worship is launched. That's the idea. Listen, it's really important to get this. If you run into somebody or maybe you know someone at work or live near somebody in their home or maybe somebody who lives in your house or maybe somebody who's wearing your shoes this morning, if you think you can know who God is absent the Bible... Got to tell you, you're on the wrong track. People say, well, I know God. I don't need to go to church. I don't need to read my Bible. I spend time with God every day. I drive about 30 minutes to work every day, and I talk to God every day. Can I gently say to that individual, you have an idea of God. And I bet if I scratch long enough, your idea of God looks a lot like you. Your idea of God wants the stuff that you want. You know, really, that's all that health, wealth, and prosperity preachers are. It's not God they're lifting up. It's their God they've created. 
It's what they would like to be in a, have in a God because then that God would give them all sorts of stuff and they use people to get what they want. That's really what's going on. It's a celestial transaction. It's an idolatrous relationship. A Mary's not falling for any of that stuff. Everything that she says is so personal. It just erupts from her, but it's rooted in truth. Notice the words that she says, where she says, my soul magnifies, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. It's, it's overwhelming. Matter of fact, that word magnifies has the idea of rise or expand, to, to stretch. That's the idea. It reminds me of a time when I was playing basketball. My ankle was magnified when I turned it over playing basketball. And I remember as I crawled off the court, the the trainer ran over. And he said, we've got to put ice on it. And he said, tie up your shoe. I said, tie up my shoe? What are you talking about? Tie up my shoe. Tie up your shoe. It's going to swell. You don't want the ankle to swell. we got a big game in two weeks. And so as I began to slowly tie it up, he goes, let me do it for you. And he wrenched on my ankle. I remember laying there going, what is this guy doing? And he's just tightening my shoe down. He didn't want my ankle to swell. He didn't want to be magnified. In other words, we see here her soul swells. She doesn't want to tighten it down. She wants to let it go. My soul is doing what it, was, what it was created to do, to magnify the Lord. When we see what he is doing, my soul just expands, it rises, it swells. This idea of rejoice, my spirit rejoices, has the idea of an unspeakable, overwhelming. You can't put it in words. It's like a, when somebody sees something in the sky or they see that sunset. We talked about that little little child represented that that purple color and that orange color and I never thought I can't even describe it it's unspeakable that's the idea of rejoicing and in God my savior the focus of her worship was completely focused on God now at this point I've got to pause again Uh, there are people in the Roman Catholic faith who think that people worship Mary again If you're manufacturing a deity and you're throwing somebody in like Mary who's getting some of the limelight, i got to tell you, she's not thinking about that. She sees God as her Savior. She sees what's going to happen in her is the thing that's going to deliver her because she's a sinner just like us. Certainly blessed because of what God is going to do through her and no other female, but nevertheless, she rejoices her worship is based on her trust that she needs a Savior. And she knows that God was going to send a Savior. And can you imagine the mind-blowing reality when the Savior is coming through her? That's what she's talking about. She's had a lot of time to think about this. Matter of fact, from Luke 1, 39 through 45, as we talked about, uh, can you imagine what that journey must have been like after she's told that the Lord is going to do this? Can you imagine as she's going down to where Elizabeth lives, some 70 miles, can you imagine how her mind's racing? That's where I think she was pulling these scriptures from. I think as she's walking, possibly riding, who's with her, we don't know, but her mind is racing as to what the Lord is doing and she's primed for this. And by the time she arrives at Elizabeth and gives her greeting and tell her what's going on, she has it confirmed 
And she launches into the worship. And so that first part is very, very personal. But notice in verse 53, excuse me, 50 through 53, Mary's worship was also very practical. And this is where we get the transition between the personal, the me and mine, to the idea of those and there. She goes from herself and now she expands the circle. It says this, he has shown strength with his arm, verse 51. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with goods and the rich he has sent away empty. It's very practical. Notice the distinction here. One versus the other. 51 says he had his strength of his arms, scattered the proud. 52, brought down the mighty, exalted those of humble estate, filled the hungry and the rich he has sent away empty. Notice the contrast there. It's very practical. Others, her worship recognizes what God is doing in the lives of people. But you may have noticed that I skipped a verse. I skipped verse 50. Because I think 50 is the, is the rudder, if you will. Have you ever been in a boat? You ever been in a boat? The guy's sitting there with a steering wheel. The steering wheel turns. And as he's doing this, what happens is, is the rudder behind him is directing where he's going to go. I remember I used to take uh, kids from the inner city and I'd take them sailing as part of this program I was with. I loved doing that. It was a blast. We had a great time all week and I told them if we won some tournaments and spent time together and hung out, I would take them out on the boat. And they were scared to death. They'd never been sailing, let alone many of them swimming. And so we made sure, I got to say this, we made sure they passed their swim test because about what I'm about to tell you. We would go out and on the sailboat, 16-foot sailboat, and I'd let them use the, the rudder. And I would let them sit back there, and we got the jib out there and the mainsail, and we're cooking down the lake. It was an absolute blast. And I'd let them use the rudder. And I'd say, you know what? This whole boat will go wherever you want it, as long as the wind is provided for the sails. You can affect where we go. And they would spin it this way and that way. It was a good time. Then I'd get on the rudder and I'd say, now we're going to have a little bit more fun. And I would try to catch the wind as fast as I could and set that boat up on its side. What a blast. But the best part was I'd take that rudder and I'd throw it all the way to the side and we would burn in into the lake. The whole thing would flip and we'd go in. It was chaos and kind of crazy. What an adventure. They could all swim. And we would be on, we'd get up on this boat and we'd talk about how the fear of God is like a rudder. And if you let go of that rudder or you push it in a certain way, this is what your life's going to be like. We'd sit on the hull of that boat and talk. And then we would have to flip the boat back over. What a pain that was. We'd get all back in the boat and I'd talk to him about how the Lord flips our lives around. If you look to Christ, he'll take what has been broken, but been burned in, been wrecked, ruined the ride, and he can make it whole. I think that's something that Mary knows. In his mercy, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. The thing that distinguishes this practical worship between one or the other, one or the other, one or the other, is the fear of the Lord. That's the rudder of this passage. If we fear him from generation to generation. Now you might say, how can I worship a God I fear? 
Well, this is the beauty of that. The God that you should fear, that I should fear, says, come close. And we have this tension that we fear him, and yet he loves us. We fear him for who he is and his his power. He's the creator. But we love him because he says, come close. Do you know that even in Exodus chapter 20, when the Ten Commandments are given, they're not given to create a relationship with the people of Israel. They're created because God wants to reveal himself to them. He already has a relationship. He's already called Abraham out. He's already chosen Abraham, Genesis 15, unconditionally. Calls him out in chapter 12, unconditional in chapter 15 and chapter 17. Gives them a sign of their belief, circumcision. But he has a relationship with them. So he gives the law not to create a relationship, but to reveal him to them in the relationship. Notice the difference. The commands were never given so that God then, if you obey, he would smile on you. No, they're given so that you'll fear him. That's exactly what it says. Verse 20 of Exodus 20, after he gives the commandments, Moses said to the people, do not fear God, for he has come to test you that you would fear him. It may be before you that you may not sin. Now, there's a lot of stuff we can talk about there, but the bottom line is this. Don't fear him, fear him. That's strange. Don't fear him because he's for you. That's the idea. Fear him when you're not for him. See the difference there. And this is the beauty of that. They look back at this and we see the revelation of who God is. And they could never measure up. But he gave them sacrifices until the ultimate sacrifice would come. So that now the righteousness of God is satisfied in Christ. And if you trust in him, you are righteous. All the more that should propel our worship. All the more. And so I think she saw this idea of fear is the distinction in her worship. I fear you. Matter of fact, Paul David Tripp says this. I think this is a great phrase. Somebody should put this on a plaque someplace, and I bet somebody has. To fear God means that he becomes the single most important reference point for all that I desire, think, do, and say. And then he goes on. The fear of God is meant to be the central organizing force in my life. And that's what I think is happening in these three verses. It's this or that, this or that, this or that. What's the difference between these two groups of people? The fear of God. One fears, one doesn't. One calls the shots, one recognizes who calls the shots. One wants to be the creator, one says there is only one creator, I'm the creature. Thank you, Lord. That's the distinction. And her worship is so practical. It's so spot on. So I've got to ask you a question. How is the Lord showing himself strong in your life? And do you fear him? How is he showing himself strong in your life? Do you fear God? If you found yourself this week doing something that's wrong and you were arrested in your spirit. Ah, I wish I didn't say that. I wish I didn't think that. I would love to be better than that. If you did, that's good. It's not bad. Because in that moment... Gives you time to go, could you help me? Help me, Lord. Help me to be more. Help me to remember who you are. Thank you that Jesus Christ has done what he's done. So I'm asking this not from a basis of performance, to earn something. But help me because I'm in relationship with you and I want to magnify you. 
I want to swell with the understanding of who you are. I don't want to hold that back. I don't want to tie that down. Her worship is incredibly practical. And it moves on to there, verse 54. Not only was it practical that we talked about, it's also prophetic. Look at verse 54. Notice how the circle is expanding a little bit more. From those and there to now, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. In remembrance of his mercy, God did what he did because God is who he is. That's really important. Helped his servant Israel. How did he help his servant Israel? He had mercy on them. They didn't deserve anything. God did what he did in calling Israel to himself because he is who he is. Not because Israel had its act together. For sure, Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8 talks about that the Lord has chosen you to be his people, his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Verse 7, it is not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you or chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It's as if there's a pickup game and everybody's in front. Strong people. And we're picking up to play a game of baseball. You got a guy over there has a uniform on. He's got it all together. He's got a bat. And you got another guy over there who's played for years. And you got another person over there. They clearly know what they're doing. They're throwing the ball hard. And then there's a scrawny runt at the end of the line. And the picture is that the God goes, I'll take that one. Everybody goes, what in the world? Why would you take that one? Because his play is up to me. It's not his ability I'm looking for. I'm just going to have mercy on him so everybody from then on would go, why in the world would you pick him? So that people would go, God should never pick me. God should never work in my life. Look at what I've done. He goes, that's exactly why I did that. You see, if it relied on the person and God is just picking the best of the best, the tendency to think, well, I did it. Congratulations. God picks the best players. No, he picks the people of weak, the runts. And if you're here, dare I say, a spiritual runt, congratulations. You're the, just the type of person that God picks. And Mary's worship is prophetic in this regard. She talks about to Abram, to his offspring forever. Why not Moses at this point? Why not David? Because Abram's where it all started. And Abram wasn't involved in this. If you read the story in Genesis 15, it was unconditional. It was based on God. He didn't want anybody to take the claim. And then he says, offspring forever. Not as he started. Unconditionally in Abram, he says that it's going to happen forever. It's relying on me forever. And that fuels her worship. So question. Third question. Run into the fourth quick. How does the Lord's action in the past cause you to worship in the present? Because that's what I think she's doing. She's stretching back into history, pulling what's true, what she knows about God, and she's worshiping. You see, the past is meant, when you look in the, the rear window of your life as you're going down the highway, 
you look back and you see how God put things together. You say, man, that's awesome, Lord. I never would have thought about this was meaning that or would lead me here. But just like Mary looks back and sees Israel, Abram, then she stretches that far forward forever. I think that her worship was incredibly prophetic, which leads us to the fourth, verse 56. I put all P's here, and uh, just worked. Uh, prerequisite for God-centered living. That's what Mary's worship was. And it seems like it's a little bit of a, a speed bump in the text. Seems like it's a little bit of a, a narrator's addition just to pull things together. I think it's much more than that. Look at verse 56. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. What would you think? Let's imagine you're living in Nazareth, okay? You're living in Nazareth. Mary's been away. She's visiting Elizabeth. Nothing strange about that. 14 years old, traveling. Eh, a little strange about that. That's a little unusual. 70 miles away, three months. Hold on a second. Getting a little stranger. Isn't she betrothed to, to Joseph? Yeah, she's betrothed to Joseph, uh, Wow, they're not spending any time together. That's a little strange. Uh, Joseph's making all the preparations. She should probably be around. She comes back home. And all of a sudden, Mary has to tell people what's going on. You know, what's interesting about this is, is that she never tells anybody. I've looked all through the passages. It never says she sits Joseph down. And she says, I got something to tell you. I had this angel came and said this and did this and I'm pregnant. I mean, who's going to believe that? Never says it to her parents. It's as if she's silent. The only time we have anybody getting involved is Gabriel. At least we think it's Gabriel. In Matthew chapter 1, 18 through 25, it says this, Now the birth of Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, and before they came together, she was found to be with child. Now listen. In the text it goes on, it says, With child from the Holy Spirit. What we need to think about for the tension of what this verse is talking about, she found to be with child, which is a giant red alert. Uh, it's one thing to get pregnant and not be married today. It's completely different back then. I think this is said in this passage because Mary's worship was setting her up for going back to Nazareth, trusting the Lord. Matter of fact, I think that Mary didn't worry because I don't think worry can live in the same atmosphere as worship. And that's why I don't think she's ever seen telling anybody. She just steps back. God, you're doing this. I can't message this thing. I don't know about this. And Gabriel shows up and he tells Joseph. He's willing to put her away. But when he comes in, he says... Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. When we know God, we trust God. And we trust God, we worship. Even when other people don't understand why we're worshiping, just keep worshiping. Keep trusting. Keep knowing. God will bring other people around as he sees fit, just like Joseph. Who can carry that, that message? Only God can carry that. She couldn't represent. So the question I have for you as the band is coming up, how will the worship of God insulate you from the hardships of this world? Because this is the thing. 
If our knowing isn't aligned, it doesn't lead to trust. And our trust is not aligned, it won't help us worship. But if we do know God, and if we actively have him being formed in our minds, we learn to trust and it leads us to worship. And you know what it does? It insulates us from the hardship that this world has, just like it did with Mary. It insulates us as you are in the middle of, let's say, a situation with your family that you don't like, a spouse, a job. Could be a, a health situation. At that moment, what you know about God is going to indicate how you trust the Lord. If you walk in that knowledge of trust, and it'll set you up for worship. So pay attention to how you worship, because when you worship the Lord, it says you're trusting the Lord. And when you're trusting the Lord, over time you realize that's on the basis of who He is. It insulates you. So that's what Mary's worship was like. That's what our worship is supposed to be like. In all the ways that we talked about this morning. And be encouraged that Jesus has done everything necessary for you to be accepted with the Father if you've trusted in him. Walk in that truth and let your heart sing. If you're here this morning, you've never trusted in Christ. Your idea of Christ is that he's a creed or a cause or maybe just church. Maybe commandments being good enough. I've got to say, uh, that's not. He'll accept Christ, and that's it. But isn't it good news that Christ has been provided? He's been provided for us. So I'd encourage you to repent and trust in Christ this morning. May our hearts be filled with the knowledge of who he is. May that encourage us to trust him all the more. And may we worship in a way that the world sees it's obvious in our life. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your grace, your mercy, all the things that Mary exploded in worship. We've seen that in our life. We don't trace it like we see it in Scripture, not with a level of detail, but we can see the themes. And we're thankful that we can come on the day, the first day of the week, as a constant reminder of the resurrection. That's why we come here on this day, is that constant cadence You've risen from the dead. So our coming here is a resolved belief that you've paid the price for us. So now help us to walk in these ways of worship. Help us to trust you. Help us to know you. And when we're drifting, bring others around us, this church, to help. Hey, this is what you're like. or You're not like this. Help us to encourage each other. Hold each other accountable. To inspire one another on because we're in this together and we thank you for your spirit and your word. Grow us up so we might spread your fame, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.